Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Bill Schenken. Bill is a little bit different than the type of guests we traditionally have on the podcast. Bill's expertise is very specific. His firm, which he will explain in his introduction, provides fractional CFO services to his clients. This gives Bill's firm a unique perspective. And as I think you'll be able to deduce from the transactional stories that he shares with us, how beneficial a fractional CFO can have. Bill shares a story about how a major league baseball team was brought to Denver and how entrepreneurs can learn valuable lessons from this transaction. While this is not a typical story that we hear on the podcast very often, I think it's relevant for every business owner to listen to this episode and see how they can use lessons learned from this transaction in their own business. Bill also shares how a hypergrowth company that was doubling sales every year outgrew the capability of some of the members of their management team. Now here's the rub. More likely than not, when this happens in a company, the owner often tries to show loyalty and does everything possible to keep his original team on board and employed with the company. Listen to how this situation was handled for the company Bill was representing and what the outcome was. Then Bill shares how a family tragedy forced the wife, who was the marketing director for the company, into becoming the CEO after her husband passed away. Now, being the CEO wasn't something that she was trained to do, but she just put her head down and moved forward. You'll learn and hear how her acting as CEO turned out during an acquisition offer, and I think you're going to be interested in how this all turned out. Finally, Bill shares how a founder of a company was able to sell his company to a large multinational firm for a bundle of money and then buy it back for pennies on the dollar five years later. This is a story we often hear of how large companies really don't know and understand how to handle small entrepreneurial companies and how this can benefit entrepreneurs. Listen for why this happened I think you'll find it interesting. This is going to be an interesting episode packed with great takeaways. So let's dive in. Enjoy. Hi, this is Marvin L. Storm, and here we are at the return episode of Business Exit Stories. Today, we kind of have a treat for our audience today. We have an individual that's a little bit different oriented than a lot of our guests uh, have been in the past here on the podcast. Uh, Bill, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about uh, kind of what your specialty is and what you do and kind of where you're located. Uh, and so just take a, a minute or two and uh, give us a little brief background, and then we'll chat a little bit about that later on. Uh, and then we're going to jump in and talk about some of the transactions, kind of the unique transaction that Bill's been a part of that there's some great takeaways here for those in our audience. So, Bill, would you take a, just a brief minute and introduce uh, yourself and your company and what you do and where you're located to? Sure. Thank you, Marvin. So we are actually located in the Denver, Colorado area. 
And my current company, CFO, I founded 21 years ago. I actually started my career as a CPA at Ernst & Winnie in West Palm Beach, Florida. And I quickly moved into a special group that specialized in working with Palm Beach money people, uh, which included their businesses, their estates, uh, consulting, their tax work. Uh, it was a great... The reason I tell this story is because it was the foundation that modeled my career uh, to this day. And I moved to Denver in 1989. I was with a local CPA firm that we grew from 10 to 45 people. And then we were acquired by uh, Century Business Services, which was a public company. So I actually went through an acquisition of my own company with CBiz. I stayed on as a national partner with them for two years. Uh, it was great the first year and not so great the second year. So I left and I started CFO in the year 2000. And what we do is we really practice in four areas. One is outsource chief financial officer, where we are the CFO for businesses. The second area is family office services, where we act as the chief financial officer for wealthy families, usually a 50 million net worth or more, and do all their accounting and tax work. The third area is tax work. We do tax return preparation, compliance, audit work, uh, mainly focused on the clients in our other practice areas. It's not like we have this big tax practice. We really focus that on our clients that are CFO or family office clients. And then the fourth area is the M&A area, uh, putting deals together, selling companies, buying companies, doing due diligence, helping companies be more profitable. Uh, I've probably done several billion dollars of debt and equity financing over the 35 years that I've been doing this. I really enjoy doing deals um, as acting CFO for companies. We really have an insight into their financial status and, and the availability of what they might be able to sell the company for, if they can sell a company, just have been involved in a ton of different deals. So that's that's an overview. Well, I'm excited to uh, kind of jump in here and uh, kind of peel back the onion on some of those transactions I see for those of you that are listening on the podcast and maybe not on YouTube or the video of this. Uh, I see that you have an Iron Man uh, shirt on. Is that uh, representative of anything? It is. Um, I've been a cyclist for many years, and then I got this crazy idea about five years ago that maybe I could do some triathlon events. And so I started uh, training for sprint triathlons, which is your entry-level triathlon. And then, long story short, worked up to a full Ironman. So, yeah, I, I've done. <laughs> well, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I am thoroughly impressed, you know, and I, I appreciate that insight to kind of who you are and kind of what your, you know, profile makeup is. So this will be interesting as we kind of jump in. Um, so why don't we get started and talk about a transaction here that uh, maybe had its challenges uh, uh, that you could share with our audience. And uh, then we'll, we'll kind of pull out a key uh, takeaway for those that are listening in that they might be able to use in their own business. Sure. Well, I, the first story would be regarding a, a taxi company that we were involved with for many, many years. I was acting CFO literally back in the 90s for the company and worked with the main owner, uh, the operating owner. He had some silent partners for many, many years. They were approached by a very large public company that was doing a roll-up 
of taxi companies in the United States. So just for our audience that may not be familiar with that term roll-up, why don't you briefly explain what that means? Sure. So they decided they wanted to be in the taxi business. Uh, they were in the transportation business, mainly with buses and, and other types of transportation other than taxis. So they decided they wanted to be in the taxi business. And when we say roll-up, that means they went out and they started acquiring taxi companies all across the United States and rolling them up. But they weren't a domestic U.S. company, right? No. I mean, they had a, they formed a domestic U.S. entity to run the businesses. But they were based overseas, right? Yeah. Very complex, large company. So they approached uh, the owner of the company and he told me about it. And so we got involved with helping to negotiate the deal. They're, they sent in their due diligence team to scrub the books, to look at the operations. We did all of the presentations and I'll answer all the questions as far as due diligence related to accounting and other areas that we had knowledge of. And basically helped put the deal together and sold the company for approximately $10 million. The, uh, our client became an executive director of the, uh, the, uh, the buyer's company and went on and worked with them for many years. And I didn't talk to him for several years. And then about six, seven, eight years later, he called me and he said, guess what? They don't know what they're doing. So when you say they, you mean this large international company that's bought up all these taxi companies in the U.S., they really don't understand the taxi business and they're kind of clueless, right? They didn't understand the business and they were making poor decisions. And my former client, who is really a good operator and very well known in the industry in the U.S., um, again, called me and told me what was going on and said, we have an opportunity here to buy this company back for a lot less. So uh, he brought in another partner out of New York who was going to be the main partner in the negotiations with, with the seller who was the buyer. I hope that doesn't sound confusing, but. Well, let's make sure we understand who's on first and second and third here. So we have the, the large international transportation company bought, bought the company. So they're one player. They run it for a while. You have your client who's kind of, a director with them. And uh, now you have a third player that they're running the company so badly that he thinks there's an opportunity. They may be interested in selling the company. And so there's a third party that is negotiating to buy the company back. And I assume uh, a lot less than what they paid for it. Yes. It's a great summary. Totally accurate. So uh, the third party and I started working on buying the company back. And I was asked to handle all the negotiations with the seller and come up with a price and handle all the, the due diligence and just put the deal together from a tax perspective and all that. So I did that and we bought the company back for 2 million. So that's uh yeah, 20 cents on the dollar basically. And uh, basically the same company, uh, which was probably a lot less profitable. Yes when you bought it back than it was at the time that they sold it. Yeah, they were making bad decisions. Um, you know, obviously the transportation industry, especially in the taxi companies, the world has changed substantially with Uber and Lyft. And there's all kinds of challenges there. That's a different topic. But uh, yeah, so not only was it not as profitable, then they started having more challenges on how to make it profitable. 
and keep the business uh, moving forward. But I think, you know, for those that are listening, and I've had a number of discussions and know personally, actually, people that have sold their company, they founded a company, they sold it, uh, sold it to a larger player. The larger player doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, it becomes kind of an albatross around their neck when management changes and strategic focus change and um, they can buy it back. So we have a situation here that's almost a, a textbook case of this. And so I guess the big takeaway then for, you know, those that are listening in here is that, you know, when you sell your company, it may not be the last act. You know, you never know what's going down the road, especially if you're selling to a larger player. And uh, because the larger players that acquire smaller companies uh, really sometimes don't know, know what they're doing or don't understand intuitively what an entrepreneur founder understands. Uh, and sometimes you may get a second bite of the apple. And in this case, at a big 80% discount. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that story. Um so why don't we uh, kind of move into another transaction here uh, that uh, is interesting because you your specific orientation to the whole M&A world is kind of multidimensional. And so you see a lot of different things because you're called in, you know, as a, you know, CFO kind of expert. And my understanding is, you know, you actually, in some cases, become the CFO for a company, either on a full or part-time basis. And that gives you kind of a unique insight into how a company operates. So why don't you share a story about how that insight has helped you? This is a story I, I like to tell because it's uh, quite interesting and unique. Back around 1990, the National League announced they were going to add two franchises to Major League Baseball. And we knew Denver being a crazy sports town, which it really is, would be a prime target to acquire one of the franchises. So my former partner had actually done a little bit of research on having a professional baseball team in Colorado. And we had a file on that. And I remember within a couple of days after the announcement, he, he was out of town. He called me, said, Bill, go pull that file and take a look at it and start working on it. And I said, okay, who's our client? And he said, just start working on it. You, you understand why. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. We're going to start working on this because we know that somebody is going to want to acquire uh, a baseball team in Colorado, and they're going to need all this financial information. Basically, the projections, how's a team going to perform financially? What's all that look like? How does it work? And, you know, obviously, baseball is a unique business. It's not like, you know, just basic accounting. There's a lot of things that are unique to the business, stadium deals, uh, concession deals. I didn't have any background in that. So I called five CFOs, chief financial officers for other professional teams. And it was amazing. Most of them were like, oh yeah, we'd love to help you ask away your questions. You're putting together your projections as you get into each area, ask your questions. So I did over many, many months, I became an expert in baseball. And so I started developing the financial projections that said, this is what's going to happen. This is how much we're going to have to pay for the team. This is uh, how the team's going to do over the next three years. Here's the salaries. Here's the concession deal. Here's everything. And so the governor of Colorado, Governor Romer at the time, who had tremendous insight, 
realized that nobody was stepping up to say, I want to own a team. So what he did is he put together a three-man baseball commission whose goal was to go out and get some owners for a Colorado baseball team. So what they did is we started talking to you know very wealthy individuals and very successful business owners. And me and my team ended up making 20, 30 presentations. I mean, I did this so much, I knew it in my sleep to protect prospective owners. And so we we made all the presentations. There was a whole bunch of different groups that were interested in owning the team. So Governor Romer said, okay, we're going to go to the downtown Marriott. They had a huge conference table. There was like 40 people around the table. And he said, you've got three minutes, each uh, group that wants to own the team to make a presentation of why we should pick you to own the team. Go around the table make the presentations. The governor says, okay, I'm going out in the hallway with the three guys and we're going to make a decision. And in five minutes, they came back and they said, we picked this this investment group. They hired us because we had all the information. And so I started working with them along with my partner and other people in my firm and, and going along with the National League, you know, giving them documents they were requesting, filling out the applications, going through the motions And then all of a sudden on a Saturday, my partner calls me and says, Bill, I've got some really bad news. The FBI just called me. Okay. Wait wait a minute. The FBI, what are they doing calling you about a baseball team? Yeah. The reason they called us is because they knew we were very involved with the financial aspect of getting the team. And actually, the FBI, FBI was investigating this individual who was the CEO of a public company. I won't say any names. It's all public knowledge. But um, so anyways, they were investigating this individual and they wanted to talk to us because they knew we were in uh, very extensive discussions and work setting up the team. So we had to scramble because we knew that we we were very concerned that the National League would find out about this and say, wait, hey, you guys, are we're, you're done. We're pulling your application. Denver's not getting a team. So you're scrambling because you know that the general partner is probably not going to be approved. So you need a general partner that can pass the sniff test with the National League. Exactly. So we started talking to some of the limited partners like Coors, and there's very prominent businesses that were the limited partners, and got them to agree to become general partners and went back to the National League. And we were very transparent. We said, here's what's going on. Here's what's happened. We are we are a team of professionals with integrity and ethics, and we're telling you what happened. We don't want anything to do with these three individuals. We're kicking them out. We brought in companies like Coors, who everybody knows and has a great reputation. And the National League said, okay, we'll give you a chance. And so we pushed forward, and obviously we got the team, and it was fascinating. I mean, I was involved with this negotiations with the stadium district and helping to build the stadium and analyzing that. And really, I set up all their accounting software. I was really the acting CFO for the team until they hired their executive management. Oh, I, I got to tell you one quick funny story. So the new CFO comes in and he's a grant. Keep in mind, this is back in 1991. So technology was a little different back then. So he asked, he says, I have a question on the payroll module and the accounting software. And I said, what is it? He said, how many digits can you print out on a check in the payroll? (laughs) 
think about it. I mean, they're paying their players million dollar bonuses. So he was asking me if the accounting system was capable of handling these kinds of checks, which of course it was. And of course, today all that's handled differently. But you know, I thought that was quite amusing when he asked me that question. <laughs> but I mean, you're right. Uh, well, pro probably at that time, not all accounting software could do that. And he probably had right. a good reason for asking. Yeah, it was a totally legitimate question. But I think the moral of the story here is when we found out what happened, we didn't panic. Obviously, we were concerned, but we didn't panic. And we're like, we want the team. And we're going to do everything we can to fix this problem. So I think the moral is don't give up. You know, if 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 something bad happens, fix it if you can. I mean, obviously you can't fix everything, but don't give up. I mean, push hard for something you believe in. Well, I think this is a great story, although it's a, you know, a story that most of the audience that's listening to the podcast here isn't going to deal with and acquiring a a national league team and at that level. But I think the, the, as you said, the big takeaway here is, is that in any transaction that you're involved in, especially in transactions that are involving, uh, outside third parties in, a, a an exit, you know, when someone is buying and someone is selling, there's always curveballs that are going to be thrown to you. And, uh, you know, maybe not as big as this, but for you, they have equal gravity as a, a founder entrepreneur that's selling their company. All of these things are as big and as on a proportionate basis, maybe even more important to you as an individual. And that when you get these bumps in the road that come out of left field that will potentially crater the deal, uh, I think the moral that you put forth here is, don't panic, take a deep breath, just fix it and don't give in. Uh, I think that is a, a takeaway that everyone that is listening, that has a business to this podcast, uh, you're going to have those unexpected events. And this story, I think, represents, it could have been a huge deal. I mean, if you, if you hadn't responded appropriately, we might not have the Colorado Rockies. Yeah. So this is a great story. And I think it, it's apropos. So uh, we're going to take a um, short break here, and we'll be right back with Bill, and he can share some more stories with us. I hope you're enjoying Bill's stories on the podcast today. The takeaways are really insightful, and I think you're going to enjoy even more of them as he continues to share his stories. To help you gain even more from the podcast, I've prepared a white paper that will provide even more insights on how you can literally double the amount of money that goes into your pocket when you sell your business. If you'd like a copy of this white paper, simply go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash white paper to get your free copy. Now, let's get back to Bill and have him share a few more stories and insights. All right, Bill. Um... That last story on the the baseball team and uh, don't give up, just fix it and uh, you know move forward. I think is a great takeaway. So let's talk about uh, another transaction that you've been involved in that uh, has an equally insightful takeaway for our audience here. Sure. So we were approached by a company in the pharmaceutical staffing business. What does that mean? So they they have a staff. It's like a recruiting firm almost. They have a staff of pharmac pharmacists and pharmacist techs. The pharmacist techs are not quite at the level of pharmacists, but they assist the pharmacists and they are able to do a lot of things in the pharmacy. So basically this company 
would get Walgreens or CVS and help them get their pharmacists and their pharmacist tech. This company was so successful, they were doubling their revenue literally for like four years in a row. They were introduced to us and they said to us, we want to sell our company. But our challenge is, is that we have a controller who we've outgrown because we keep doubling our revenue. We're getting so big that she's really over her head and we need a CFO, but we want to sell our company. So we said, okay, so we were hired as acting chief financial officer. We went in and did everything a CFO would do. And then we were also, our primary goal was to help sell the company. So we did what we call pre-due diligence. Now, that's a term that uh, isn't used very often, uh, pre-due diligence. We hear the term due diligence all the time. Uh, why don't you just talk a little bit in, and, and put it in the context of this particular transaction of what pre-due diligence really means and how, how that benefits uh, someone to think in, in that mindset. I really wish more companies would do pre-due diligence. It should be a term that is, is used a lot more. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's not used a lot. But what it means is we act like we're the buyer. So normally in a transaction, there's, you, you, you come up with a letter of intent and then you go into the due diligence phase, right? So we're basically going into the due diligence phase as if we're the buyer, I'm going to buy the company and I'm going to scrub their books. I'm going to look at everything. And when we do that, we find issues or problems. We clean them up, we fix them so that when they are ready to meet their buyer and do due diligence, it's squeaky clean. And, and the real takeaway from this is, let's say you have a contract for 30 million, a letter of intent. So, you know, people get together, they look at financials, they look at operations, they look at basic stuff before they sign an LOI, but they can't look at everything, right? So that's how a deal works. You sign an LOI and then you come in and you scrub everything and you see what everything looks like and you, you determine whether that amount in the LOI is okay or not. So again, if the LOI is 30 million and the buyer comes in and finds problems with AR or they find problems with you know, the operations or whatever, then they're back at the table and saying, hey, we're not gonna pay you 30 million, we're gonna pay you 25 million. So again, what we do is we do the due diligence before the buyer comes in. That's why it's called pre-due diligence. And so we did that. And the company, uh, we had an investment banker involved with the deal. They found a, a, a public company, very large uh, billion dollar public company that wanted to acquire this company. So we handled all the due diligence with the buyer, everything they requested, we gave it to them when they had questions, they came to us, we answered all the questions. And so their LOI was their final purchase price. They got every penny out of the LOI. So, you know, to put this in context, you know, for all the stories that are shared here on the podcast about uh, transactions that go sideways or some that go very well and others that take unexpected turns, uh, just to give context, you know, the LOI that has this contract number in, which is a number that's floated after some preliminary, you know, investigation, it's by far the exception rather than the rule that that LOI number comes in at uh, that uh, specific number that's outlined in the LOI. 
And so what Bill is really sharing here is that because, and putting this in context, you have a management team of a company that's growing, growing relatively quickly and fast. They recognize some basic issues. And this is, I think, for our audience out there. When you look at your own staff and if your company is growing or just not doubling every year, but having a good healthy rate, sometimes the people that got on the ship initially with you uh, aren't the people that are going to get you into port, you know, years down the road. And they out either out, they're outgrown and their skill set isn't able to match up to the challenges three, four or five years down the road. And in this particular situation, they recognize that. And that is something that not all entrepreneurs and founders and business owners actually do. And sometimes it's just because of the personal relationships, they're hesitant to uh, upgrade their, their team. But in this case, it paid off handsomely because brought in an expert, acted as CFO, uh, actually started because he had a specific goal in mind. And that was to exit and to sell and to be acquired. And, uh, as you said, Bill, um, the company was acquired at what the LOI actually stated. And would you say that the pre-due diligence drove that decision? Yes, absolutely. You know, I would tell, I would tell your audience that if you're thinking about selling your business, it's all about the numbers, right? If it costs you 100000 say it costs you 200000 I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. But if it costs you 200000 to have somebody come in and do your pre-due diligence, and you, and you have a contract for $20 million that gets kicked down to eighteen or $17 million because you didn't do a good job of scrubbing your books and doing pre-due diligence, $3 million lost. If you spent 200000 you would have gotten the $3 million. So it's something I tell business owners a lot and whether we do it or someone else does it, you know, I think it's important for business owners to consider the benefit of pre-due diligence. Well, I think the big takeaway here is whether you're talking about a $20 million deal, a $2 million deal, or a $500,000 deal, whatever money that you spend preparing and getting ready, whether you call it pre-due diligence or just preparation or whatever you're going to term it, almost universally, Anytime that you invest money in positioning your company for an eventual buyer, you're going to get a two, five, seven times return on those dollars that are spent, regardless of the size of your business. And I think this story sort of, you know, dramatizes or emphasizes that fact because pre-due diligence was the key that uh, got this company sold for what it, uh, it eventually was uh, the exit value of the company. Well, let's wrap it up here, Bill, with uh, one more story. Uh, is there anything else that uh, you can pull out of the hat here than the transactions that you've dealt with? Uh, we have another company uh, that is in the services industry, and a gentleman founded the business, and unfortunately, he passed away from ALS. Uh, and then his wife, who was the marketing director of the company, stepped in as the sole owner and CEO of the company. And we assisted the company in doing some projections and looking at their internal controls and so forth and so on, and helped get everything in pretty good shape. 
And then she said to me, I would like to sell the company. So just, just for context, I want to understand here. So we, we had a founder that, uh, were they both involved in the business intimately? Uh, husband and wife team? This is how it started out? No, the husband started the business before he met the wife. Okay. Then they, they met and he brought her on as a marketing director and they got married. And so she's not a CEO. I mean, I'm just telling you, she's a marketing director, but she got thrown into the CEO position. Because her husband's passing. Right. So we tried to support her as much as possible with the transition and and so on and so forth. But she did say that she'd like to sell the company. So uh, we positioned the company for sale and a buyer came in and offered, this was a smaller deal. I mean, it was, they offered 2 million and I'd already done evaluation and figured out what a fair price would be and what the range could be. So long story short, I did all the negotiations with the buyer and got them up to 3 million. And I thought that was really a rock solid price for the company. So just out of curiosity, the buyer that came to the table, were they a credible buyer or were they, you know, just a, a marginal buyer that, you know, may or may not be able to complete the deal? Great question. Totally 100% credible in the same industry. So it was kind of a industry acquisition. And I assume this would have been a sort of a cash offer or cash deal, like right? Yeah, it was a cash deal. and. She decided not to sell. And it was quite disappointing because I felt not only from a business perspective did it make sense, but I also felt for her own well-being, it made a lot of sense because all she would do is complain about the company, the people, the operations, the clients, the collections, you know, all we ever heard was complaint after complaint. And I felt like, hey, if you can get $3 million for your company cash, and make all the problems go away and you still have other interests and other opportunities in the business realm that that she was pursuing that made all the sense in the world to do it so she decided not to do it i'm just curious i'd, I'd kind of like to peel back the onion on this a little bit you know because this happens fairly frequently uh just the the thought of letting go you know that something you've been intimately involved in and i'm not trying to speculate on what her motivations were. Uh, maybe it was partially that she liked being CEO or she liked being, you know, feeling that she controlled, you know, the business or her own life through that. There's a lot of different reasons that founders and entrepreneurs make decisions based on emotion rather than really what the numbers and what the financial right decision would be. Uh, even though that, that, that those numbers and the logic and the financial sense that is made just because of the emotional attachment to the business and not being able to really picture themselves not running the business sometimes overwhelms that and people make decisions that are based on emotion rather than, you know, good financial sense. And it sounds like maybe that falls somewhat into this category. It does. It was a frustrating process for me because we're, you know, we're pretty independent. I mean, we have no, you know, we're not, it's not my company, although I do treat all my clients as if it is our company so that we do the best we can for them. But I think you're right. I think there was some elements of all of that in this deal. There was some ego. Maybe she felt like 
she was betraying her her deceased husband because she was selling the company. I don't really know. I'm just I'm just kind of curious because she was a marketing oriented person, hadn't been around since day one, and probably didn't wasn't intimately understanding or involved in knowing how the intermechanics of the company worked. Were there some key people on board that uh, were kind of crucial? to the operations of the company and how did that sort of impact everything here? Yeah. Great point. There was, there, there's two key employees who are very important to the business and they're going to, both of them will be retiring probably within a year. So again, I, you know, she used an excuse. She's like, ah, I think I can get more for the company. And I'm like, that's another lesson is don't be super greedy. You know, when you've got a rock solid offer on the table and you're still trying to pinch every penny, like my taxi company did when they bought back the company, you know, don't get too greedy. I mean, it's always to me, it's about a fair price for the buyer and the seller. Let's come up with a fair price. What makes sense? And there's always a range, you know, between that, that you're dealing with. But she said to me, I think I can get more money for the company. And I think, you know, and quite honestly, we spent half our time trying to help her be a CEO and train her and, and tell her what she should be doing. So, you know, the lesson here is you really should think hard before you turn down an offer, because when COVID hit, the, the company really suffered. Now, the company's come back. They're doing pretty good now. But, you know, again, all I hear is complaints about the employees and this problem and that problem. And now she's got two key employees that are going to retire. And, you know, she may try, I don't know, she may end up trying to sell the business again, and she may not get as much as we had on the table before. I don't know. So it's, it's, there's definitely a lesson there. And I, I really think that was a huge mistake not to sell that company. Well, I guess in this situation, you know, the story is yet to be told on, you know, what, what is eventually going to happen. That chapter is yet to be written, but I can tell you from stories that have been shared on the podcast here that uh, the endings don't always turn out when you have the uh, offer on the table and you, as you pointed out, that you try to you know, up the price or negotiate tougher terms and people walk away from the table and then trying to get somebody back to the table later on for the same price and the same terms sometimes doesn't happen. And the would have, could have, should have situations, uh, sometimes people regret those type of decisions. So I think what the real takeaway on a transactional story like this is, is that uh, think carefully, think very seriously when you have a deal that can consummate for cash and even though you may be able to get marginally different and more for your company, uh, you know, sometimes it's just better to take it because it's all about timing. Uh, any entrepreneur knows that uh, the economy can change, competition can come in, technology can change, a lot of things can change. And, uh, and in this particular case, that may or may not prove out to be true. But I do know that there's one thing you shouldn't let emotion drive your business decisions. Uh, and it sounds a little bit like that was kind of what was going on here. Well, Bill, you've shared some great stories here, um, some type of stories uh, with a, a baseball team and how it came to Denver and that we don't traditionally get here on the podcast. So I appreciate you taking the time and talking a little bit about that. Um, 
So I'm just out of curiosity, uh, before we wrap up here, we've, uh, you're kind of unique as a guest here that, uh, kind of a fractional part time, full time type of CFO. Uh, what's been your experience? Uh, just as a wrap up question here, uh, when someone decides to bring someone like you, is that generally driven by necessity or is that more people thinking that, uh, you know, forethought? And, uh, what the actual outcome of having someone like you come in? What, what's been your experience? Be called in as a, a CFO. Absolutely. It's all across the board. Uh, we've been called in out of necessity many times where companies kind of at their wits end. They, maybe they don't get financials on a timely basis. Maybe their financials aren't accurate. Maybe they want to acquire another company. Maybe they want a line of credit. You know, maybe they want some help with some tax structuring. You know, so a lot of times it's necessity, but I've had a lot of clients. I just had uh, somebody contact me last week through LinkedIn, said they saw my profile and they are searching for a fractional CFO. And they contacted us because they're really smart. I mean, it's a husband and wife team. They're successful. They got 20 employees and they're wearing all the hats. You know, they're wearing the CEO, CEO, COO, CFO, chief marketing officer, chief technology officer. I mean, everything. And they said, we can't do it all. If we're going to grow and we want to grow substantially, we need to surround ourselves with a team that can help us grow. And we need a CFO. We need a fractional CFO. So that, that happens quite a bit as well. Um, and then we, we've just got a whole host of different types of clients and deals. So it's really across the board. So I think especially uh, for those that are listening here, most of the people that listen to the podcast are those individuals that are just getting into the thought process of, you know, deciding that um, maybe the time is going to arrive at some point that they're going to step away from their business. And, you know, I would advise and, and challenge those out there that are listening in that if you don't have a, a real solid financial team in place, uh, as we've talked about a little bit earlier on the podcast here, it's probably one of the smarter investments you can make is to, you know, make that investment and in positioning your company for sale. And it really starts with the financial side of the business, uh, is a good place to start. So Bill, thank you for being with us here today. If someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? Uh, email is really good. And my email address is Bill Shankin, B-I-L-L-S-H-E-N-K-I-N at C-E-F-O, Charlie Echo Foxtrot, Oscar.net. Or they can call me at my direct line at 720-506-4105. All right. So just uh, if you need to chat with Bill or any really anyone on the podcast, you can reach out to me and I'll forward that information on to our guest and they'll be able to, you know, uh, chat with you and uh, figure out if something they do can facilitate uh, your positioning, your company for an exit. So this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast and uh, saying we'll see you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.